0: And so I think as a business leader and people, I think, often forget that Steve Jobs, uh, amongst many other talents, was an unbelievable business leader. He was an unbelievable businessman. And in which case we can probably get nice margins on this stuff. And I think he just made this very rational decision to compete on design and believe that people would pay more for quality. And they do. You know, when the CEO comes comes and he sets that sort of competitive differentiator for the company, the whole company has to align around that thing, because that is the existential thing. For Apple, amongst many others, but you know, the existential threat is design. Hi
1: everyone, welcome to Design Drives, where we explore why, how and what designer and designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and most innovative creatives on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to make a positive impact in the world. this episode, I chat with Bob Baxley, VP of design and experience at SaltSpot, a search and AI-driven analytics leader in Silicon Valley. Formerly, he was a senior manager of design and product management at Apple for the in-store applications, as well as Apple's online store. And later on, he became the head of product design at Pinterest. With Bob, I talk about the evolution of software as a creative medium and a potential opportunity for designers. We also talk about the design culture at Apple, and what makes it so unique when it comes to customer experience. We also learn what he has learned about innovation working at Apple during the times of Steve Jobs and why design is so much rooted into the DNA of the company and everyone working on digital and physical products. Further, we also discuss why and when extensive user research might actually be not the best choice in the product development process and why in fact, he didn't do any user research designing products that later on billions of people were using. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right. I'm here with Bob Bexley. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah,
0: Sebastian. Thanks for having me.
1: So today we're going to talk about software, um, the future of software and all of your experience working as a design leaders in many uh, different companies like Apple, Pinterest and, and many others. Uh, gaining a lot of experience working in Silicon Valley. So really looking forward to that. But it would be really great for the audience if you could give them a little bit uh, of an overview about your journey, how it all started out for you, how you actually got into design and um, just to give uh, the audience a bit of context.
0: Yeah. Um, So uh, again, thanks for having me, Sebastian. It's great to be here. I hope everybody enjoys the episode. You know, I'm a little bit older than most people work that I work with in tech right now. I was born in 1963, so as we record this, I'm a little bit older than 58 years old. When I was 11, I was going to a small school in Dallas, Texas, where I grew up, and they had just recently bought a Wang personal computer for the math classes. And at that point, the computer had a cassette tape drive to store. Uh, programs, and it had a whopping 4K of memory. And we started to learn how to program in BASIC, which if those those of you who aren't familiar with BASIC, it's sort of similar to Python, but dates way back. And I just fell in love with it, man. I don't, I don't know. It was just something about my brain, fell in love with computing, fell in love with programming. I got totally sucked into mm-hmm. it. The teacher sort of quickly stopped trying to teach me anything because she was just like, I don't know, man, he's like off in his own la-la land. <laughs> and So it just... You know, I, it, it fit my brain really well. And I just went gonzo with it for a couple of years. And then strangely, I, I transferred from that school to another school that did not have a personal computer. It only had like kind of an old style mainframe time sharing system. And I desperately wanted my parents to buy me an Apple II. And I remember vividly driving out to the computer store in one of the Dallas suburbs, looking at the Apple II, probably about 1978. For some strange reason, they just, I think they were kind of intimidated with me becoming an engineer or something. You know, it was, it was a different time. And for whatever reason, they chose not to buy me a computer. And it was sort of a game changing thing for me because I'm pretty sure I would have gone into software engineering and that's what I would have done. Uh, but it didn't come to pass. I ended up going on to college. And then my senior year of college is when the Mac came out. And at that point, they did help me buy a Mac. Um, so I got the original 128K Mac. When I was a senior in in college, and just fell in love with that. After I graduated, I got a degree in history and another degree in radio, television, film, both of which turn out to be really useful for what I do now, but not particularly useful if you want to be a software engineer. Um, so, <laughs> after I graduated with those two degrees, there weren't any obvious jobs, and I ended up starting a desktop publishing company around 1985, and that's kind of how I got into design. It was sort of through this weird back door. Of uh, pretty primitive graphic design uh, using tools like Illustrator 88 and early early versions of PageMaker on Mac SE 30s. Um, and doing graphic design in those kinds of environments was very much like playing a video game. It turns out you memorized all the software, you memorized all the keyboard commands. So you started to develop, at least I did, you started to develop an intuitive sense of how software works. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had this interesting period of just as an intense user, you start, you know, coupled with sort of a programmer's mindset you start to sort of intuitively understand how software is structured and how it all, how it's kind of works in the mind of a user. Did that for a few years and then decided to do something else. I like Literally sat down with a copy of Macworld Magazine and uh, wrote down the name and address of every advertiser in that particular issue. I sent them all uh, cover letters and resumes. There was 107 of them. I dropped them in the mail like Christmas cards and uh, two of them came back to me uh, one of them was from Claris Corporation, and that over through a series of events turned into a job in California with Claris, which was a wholly owned software subsidiary of Apple back in the John Scully era. And so I ended up at, at Claris in uh, 1990, Labor Day in 1990, where I started as the lead designer for Claris Works, which was an early Mac piece of software that was a fully integrated piece of productivity software. It was one, one application that had uh, vector drawing, uh, raster graphics, spreadsheet, word processor, database, and telecommunications all in one package. And so I was doing pretty basic uh, UI design in that. I I helped with the menu structure, a lot of icons, a lot of visual design, dialogue box type things. That product ended up being phenomenally successful. I spent a few years at Claris, and that was sort of the beginning of my my entry into UI design. Again, sort of in 1990, so a very different Mm -hmm. time than now. I I was an individual contributor through most of the 90s. By 1999, I'd moved into a management role with a company called MyCFO that uh, was doing money management for high net worth individuals during the dot-com boom. That whole place evaporated pretty much after the dot-com boom. I ended up over at Yahoo, where I got to run the design team that was working on Yahoo Search. So that would have been around 2005, I think it was. Um, and Yahoo, you know, working on all the Yahoo search properties, but probably most notably working on Yahoo Answers, um, which at the time ended up being the uh, the quickest product in Internet history to get to 100 million users, kind of an early mm-hmm. social media application. It was a basic question and answer service, not unlike Quora today. And and far and away, I, and I think this is still true, far and away, the most successful product ever developed internally at Yahoo. i had only been there for about a year and a half when I got a call from Apple to go uh, interview, to lead the design team for the Apple Online Store. I very deliberately went to work for Apple because Steve Jobs had kind of been in the back of my mind since I learned to program in 1976. (laughs) He was sort of this strange, Mm -hmm. strange character in my life somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, And I very much was cognizant of the idea of going to Apple to be in a company when he was leading it and that there was likely history to be made. And I wanted to be in the middle of that. I didn't in any way, expect them to pass away. I didn't expect the iPhone. This before the iPhone came out. I didn't expect the company to become what it is today. I just wanted to be around Steve. In the same way that I think there's a point in time when people wanted to go work at Disney because they wanted to be around Walt, and that there's there's sort of this theme that's run through the later phases of my career of trying to find places that I think are in the middle of making history and trying to be close to that history. In some ways, just to bear witness to it and and be able to tell other people about it and say, I was there when, you know? So as at, at Apple. I, I led the team that worked on the Apple online store for about six years, then transitioned over to Apple retail, was there for a couple of years, left Apple around 2014, led the design team at Pinterest for a couple of years, took a few years off. And now I'm at a company called ThoughtSpot, uh, leading a team working on a large scale data analytics uh, software so kind of transition from consumer software into enterprise software. Mm-hmm. So it's a long story to a short question, but hopefully useful.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. We went through all of the years super speedy. I think we did probably uh, uh, every five years were like 30 seconds. Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, thir- 32 years in tech in <laughs> yeah. like four minutes. Yeah, this is uh, amazing. I think it's going to be so interesting to kind of dig into the different uh, stations and the learnings throughout your career. Um, but, um, if you think about, the, uh, you know, all the, uh, different challenges you had and, uh, the different projects, what was some of the key motivation for you? Some of the main drive, uh, behind your work? You know, I think
0: for a long time, like when I first started at Claris and even up through some, most of my work at Apple, I think I was mostly drawn just to the problem of software design. Again, this isn't something I can readily explain. I've kind of given up trying to explain it. It's like, why do some people love chess and some people love football? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, like people love music, like whatever it is they love. Mm -hmm. It just turns out that I happen to love the problem of software and try to create these systems that are consistent and novel, but predictable. You know, there's just something about how software works that I find really motivating. And so for a long time, I think I was just driven by that. When I left Pinterest it was around 2016 and as I'm sure people remember there was a lot of craziness happening in 2016 that was largely attributable or seemed attributable to a lot of things that were happening in tech and you know I had gone into Apple in 2006 with like profound optimism about the future and about tech and what all this stuff could mean but by 2016 a lot of that optimism had been you know it uh, challenged if not shattered <laughs> you know it seemed like mm-hmm. software as this Thing, you know, that the idea that technology could enrich the lives of individuals had been sort of shattered by 2016, and it felt like technology had become our oppressive overlords. And so I was really uh, disenchanted and, um, you know, sort of distanced from the industry. And somehow or another, I ended up discovering this podcast called Raw Data, which was put out by a group at Stanford University. And one of the seasons was kind of about the history of Silicon Valley. And it started with the founding of Stanford University and went up to Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of Congress. And in that episode, they kind of talked about the hippie roots of Silicon Valley. And they went back Mm -hmm. to all that stuff, which is the Silicon Valley that I came to in 1990. There was still a bit of that Northern California hippie vibe. And in 1990, Silicon Valley was still a bunch of nerds that were really just trying to make the pixels dance, you know, and there was something very romantic about it. It really wasn't until advertising as a business model showed up in the late 90s and early 2000s that the culture of Silicon Valley, I think, took a much less optimistic, um, much less interesting and romantic kind of turn. And so as I was listening to the history of Silicon Valley, I sort of rediscovered the the hippie roots of Silicon Valley, and I kind of realized what it was that I loved about software. And it really came from this particular insight from a book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture. And the line was something along the lines of, if you go back to the late 60s, all the major tech companies in the United States were, uh, were rooted on the East Coast. So you have to ask, why is it that personal computing got started on the West Coast? Because it kind of shouldn't have, and the author's uh, suggestion, and I think he's right, is that it was uniquely on the west coast of California where they had the idea of software as a new kind of medium, and they compared software to movies, music, and books, um, and they really, you know, felt that that's what software is about. And I, and I think just in that moment, when I when I heard that, I was like, yeah, right, like that's how I think about this whole mm-hmm. thing. Like software is my medium as a creator. I've dabbled in photography. I've I've dabbled in music. I've dabbled in film. But I've never really, you know, pursued any of them. I don't think my heart was quite in it in the same way. But it turns out, and I'm not trying to, I can't explain it to you, but it turns out at the end of the day, I just really love software in all its forms. You know, ATM machines, the ticket machines at at Disneyland, car dashboards, this kind of stuff, the kind of work I suppose you do, the dials on my refrigerator my tivo like like you know certainly desktop software uh, mobile software like all that stuff i just love the medium of software when i talk to younger designers i try to connect them back to that and get them to think about software as a medium instead mm-hmm. of simply as a tool and i try to encourage people and this is how i think about myself like we should all kind of approach software in this way that a you know a young saxophonist might think about jazz music and if you were a young saxophonist And you were into jazz music. I can promise you that you would have a hundred albums, and you would love them deeply, and you would know about all the people that have been instrumental in your medium, and you would know all these little licks and all these little routines and riffs from all these different famous saxophonists, and you would think about jazz music as as your medium. And I wish and hope that more designers will come to think of software that way, and they'll start to learn the names of the people that that created some of these foundational software experiences and understand the history and legacy of some of the things that, you know, some of the systems that we use, because a lot of the stuff that we use, like the whole noun verb construct, you know, has, has a really interesting history that goes back, frankly, to the Apollo program, the whole idea of multimedia computing and being able to do, you know, video and audio and text all at the same time goes back to the 1940s. You know, it was written about in this really famous article by uh, the Neaver Bush that appeared in the Atlantic magazine called As We May Think. And he described pretty much, you know, many aspects of the modern Internet he was describing in the mid 1940s, late 1940s. I mean, these ideas go way, way back. It's a phenomenal medium. I think it is without question the most important cultural artifact being produced in the world today. I don't think there's any doubt that software has more influence over culture than anything else happening in in the world of movies, music, literature, fashion, industrial design, anything like we live in a software driven world. So if you are working as a software designer, I I do hope, you know, at some point you wake up in the day and think like, wow, like this is it, man. Like I am working in the most important medium of my time. I should be grateful and excited and passionate to be part of it.
1: Mm -hmm. That's so interesting, the way you kind of frame software as a medium, right? So similar how a piece of paper maybe is for a painter, right? And I think as creators, we fall in love with the, with the medium. I think the, the medium is such an important part of, of your creative exercise, right? Every creator is into a different medium, and that's what keeps people excited, right? Mm-hmm. I never heard that uh, to, to basically put software in as a creative medium and, instead of a tool, but I think the point of view is completely right. If you think about where the the future of software goes, do you think it gets further and further creative as a medium, or are we also facing basically a time of where a lot of things get systemized with you know frameworks and and, and parametric um, um, tools and systems? How, or how's how's your feeling about all of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing about software compared to other mediums is that it's uh, highly monetizable you know and mm-hmm. so you know a lot of software today does just exist as a tool to serve the purposes of a business but honestly that's equally true of literature and art and and mm-hmm. movies like there's plenty of crappy movies um uh, some of which are huge big budget production films that exist only to make money there's a very small number of of people that are working again in any of these other mediums that are really love of the art and you can you can feel it when you go see a movie where you can really feel the hand of the artist coming through versus the hand of the accountants. Um, you can see it in music, like you know, people who are creating from their hearts versus people that are creating from you know click-through rates. It's very apparent. So I don't have any illusions about the capitalist impulse to have an enormous sway over software, but I do think there's places that as a creative you can work and environments you can find that's dedicated to trying to create something unique and great and lovable. And as a designer, I try to seek those places out. And I've been fortunate to work in places like Apple and Pinterest and even ThoughtSpot, where I think that's the driving animating force behind the company is they're trying to create a great product. And then having a business that works in, in service of the product versus having a product that works in service of the business. You know, and mm-hmm. if we go to, I'm not trying to bash these companies, although I'm kind of trying to bash these companies. <laughs> if you go to Facebook, if you look at many Google products, if you look at YouTube, There is nobody on earth that can love YouTube or Facebook. They are unlovable products because they're not created by humans who are trying to create something to be lovable. They're trying to create something to extract value. It's dehumanizing and it's it's dehumanizing to the users. I think it's dehumanizing to the creators. I don't think it's sustainable over the long run, but, there's no doubt that it's uh that they're incredible businesses you know they're making a lot of people a lot of money um i don't know if that's the only value that we want to optimize for and i don't think that's the view of the future that we want to live in but there's no doubt that that is the the dominant force at play today
1: yeah. yeah that makes sense if you think about software as a creative medium and i think you were already slightly touching on the potential of that is are there any kind of I think what, what's interesting about the, the medium is that it's so, ch- so much changing, right? There are constantly new opportunities coming up as a designer. There are so many ways you could go, so many things you can explore. The friction of the tool makes it interesting, right? You have to get to know the truth and the medium over time. And I think just with a piece of paper, you have certain friction limitations with that. And that kind of like exploring these limitations, what makes it interesting, right? Uh, are there any particular fields within software as a creative medium that that really excites you moving forward um spaces that you find really exciting or a a great opportunities for designers uh
0: well there's sort of me personally as a designer and then there's sort of the broader world yeah so you know for me as a designer and as observer of my own mind and my own talents you know, I have a very much of an INTP mind. I very much live in kind of a world of complex systems. I uh, excel at complicated information architecture problems and complex kind of logic-based uh, systems. So I do well with things like checkout systems, uh, things like data analytics software, productivity software, the sorts of, you know, richer, more complex tools where users are trying to accomplish sort of multivariant tasks and that's a whole class of software. And then there's software that's more entertainment based. So I might say that something like Pinterest was really alt- in some very real ways more entertainment based and it was a lot more experiential, probably not as going to fit for me. And then there's stuff that's purely entertainment and experiential like video games, not a medium I've ever worked in, but definitely a huge part of of software design that's, you know, that's that's a, that's amazing, but again nothing I've I've really been able to pursue in my own career. So, I, I think all these different genres of software are accessible and have all sorts of interesting facets to them as a as a creator you know as a a musician you probably except for a few musicians people tend to pick a genre you know Mm -hmm. and they excel at pop music or classical music or jazz or country or something and so Mm -hmm. i think it's a little bit more like that i think be the best fit for productivity software and so tools you know speaking of you know germany and tools coming out of germany i think some of the most amazing work being done today is being done in europe Ah, uh, Pitch is is I believe based out of mm-hmm. Berlin. They're doing amazing work in Pitch. It's it's probably my favorite application right now. I it's productivity software. What they're doing technically is phenomenal. Doing it in the browser, but also when you use that tool to like be, still be innovating on. Such an established paradigm is presentation software, and they're still finding really interesting novel editing tools and editing shortcuts because they've really thought about how people use these tools mm-hmm. to be able to create something that's still a little bit better. And it is, it is—it kind of, except for the lack of transitions, which I know they're working on, except for that, it blows the doors off a of Keynote. And there's absolutely, and I love keynote. I absolutely love and adore keynote. but pitch is better, and it, it there's just absolutely no comparison to Google Slides or Microsoft PowerPoint. Like those tools are absolute crap um, in the face of pitch. There may be you know back office scaling positions and, or scaling considerations and and compatibility and stuff, but as, as far as a tool that is so clearly being created by people who love it, pitch is head and shoulders above anything else that I've seen in that in that particular, you know, part of the market. And that's kind of what I look for in the software that I use. Like, can you feel the heart of the creator coming through? And I think in a lot of cases you can, you know, I'm looking at my, my doc on my Mac right now. And, you know, when I look at Ulysses, for example, a writing application or Figma or pitch, or a few that that stand out, like, like you can feel that the people working on those tools probably took them home to their parents and said, You know, look at this. Look at what I made it the look. Look look at what I made it work with my friends. Isn't this amazing? You can feel that energy in those tools Mm -hmm. in a way that you can't. Kind of can't quite feel that in you know looking at some other ones in Zoom uh, or maybe Chrome or something. You just you don't feel the passion of the creators coming through. And, And when I say creators, I don't just mean the designers. I mean everybody like the engineers, the product people, like like everybody involved in that stuff. There's there's software tools you can feel those people's intensity and passion for trying to create something that they were proud of. And that's, as part of the audience, it's such a powerful connection for me to, again, to those creators. Mm-hmm.
1: No, totally true. I, I can't remember from whom I heard it, but I think the quote was something along the lines of that, you know, if, if you have great design, you make people feel that you care. I think care as sort of the emotion that you get as a user, basically by experiencing a product that you really have the feeling. Or I think you were describing it as energy that you really feel like the people really cared about what they were and it was thoughtful about like what they were giving to you as a user.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I've stopped using the word user and I've I've started recently. I've started using the word audience because I think we have an obligation to our audience. You know, and I mean that in like a really deep moral human way. Like we have a deep obligation to our audience to do right by them because we're asking for their time and we're asking for a lot of their time in more than entertainment mediums where we run the risk of frustrating them and increasing the anxiety and negativity and vulnerability they feel in their everyday life. Like when I give, when I used to get to give live talks in front of audiences, one of the things I used to start off was I would ask people You know, in the audience, how many of you had a frustrating experience with software in the last, let's say, week? You know, something didn't work right. You couldn't figure something out. Something wasn't quite right. Like, of course, everybody's hand goes up, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, how about how about in the last couple of days? Almost every hand stays up. How about so far today? Again, almost every hand in the audience is still up. And I often give talks at nine o'clock in the morning. So I'm looking at the audience. I'm like, like, look around. Like already by 9 a.m., over half the people in this audience has had some frustrating experience with software. And by the way, people, we are the superheroes of the software world. You know, we are not the mere mortals who don't understand how this stuff works. We are in it all the time. We actually understand how it works. So when it's frustrating, we have some sense of how to fix it. But imagine that you are just a normal person and you don't really give a shit about all this stuff because you got other stuff to do. You know, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a teacher. Like this is not the center of your life. What you're going to feel every day is this intense Vulnerability and lack of control. And you're just going to be frustrated and I think justifiably angry all the time. And that's a unique aspect of working in this medium. You know, you can't imagine, can't quite imagine somebody listening to a piece of music and being angry about it. But I can assure you that nearly every day, almost all of us have some little flash of moment where we are angry at our software. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's really, really. A enormous failing, it, again, sort of at a very deep moral human level, that's a huge failing of the tech industry. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, you know, it's just sloppy. It's so
1: freaking sloppy. Enough problems to solve for a designer. I know if everyone raises their hand, I think you can kind of see it like uh, enough work to do. I think, uh, think we play an important role there as designers, like you said, to, to make it better. And I think you were also touching on a positive impact that you can do as a designer. Talking about this maybe for a second, if since you have been working on so many different projects in your life, was there a particular project maybe where you really noticed the positive impact that you can make as a designer for the audience, like you would say? Uh, One of well, your favorite I, yeah, projects I've, maybe.
0: <laughs> well, I've been fortunate to work on a lot of stuff for a long time, um, many things that were quite successful. So I, I guess when I look back at them, there's sort of two lenses I use. One is, you know, was it a fun collaboration? Did the team come together and feel like they were creating something special in the moment? And that's that's the thing that you remember most, honestly, because the, the software that we create, it, even though I do think, obviously, think it's incredibly important, it is ephemeral. You know, this stuff doesn't last very long. We are literally mm-hmm. building sandcastles on the beach. So it's also this weird it's this weird medium where you know you need to care a lot and try to make it right but you also have to know it's not going to last and in that way it's probably closest to being a chef right like chefs aren't sitting around thinking they're building the pyramids they're making dinner you know and people are going to eat the dinner and move on with their lives but they still want to have a nice experience so it's i think of it a little bit like that so the you know the projects that i worked on that i that I was proud of was the original work I did on Clarisworks. You know, I had a different way of thinking about the menus. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the information architecture. So as you moved between these different application types, again, from like word processing to spreadsheet to database, the top level menus didn't really change. And so it I think the work I did helped to make that tool feel much more like a single piece of software instead of five different pieces of software that just happen to be on the same executable. The work we did with Yahoo Answers, I thought ended up being really, really great. Um, the team was into it. It was a very, it was a very contentious project. There was a lot of conflict in the team, but I think where we landed with the Ask, Answer, Discover framework, the graphic design of that tool, I think was really interesting. It was the first piece of software I got to show my family and that they really understood because what we do as designers is very unusual. They're, I mean, there's really, our parents don't really understand it. Usually our spouses and children can't, it's getting better, but for a long time, people were like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, In the case of Yahoo Answers, my son at the time was maybe eight or nine. The product had just released into beta um, one day and I came home and, and I was trying to show it to him and he didn't quite get it. I said, well, here, let's just pose a question and we'll have dinner. And so I posed this question of, um, you know, I looked at him. I What do you want to know? He's like, well, where do dragons come from? And so I posted this question, you know, where do dragons come from? We sat and we ate dinner and like an hour and a half later, we go back online and there was like six, six great answers, you know, that were all kind of the same, which is basically it's how people explained all the dinosaur bones they were digging up as um, you know, they created this myth of dragons because it's the only way you can explain some of this stuff. And you know, then he connected like, oh, this is a tool where I can reach out to others and get, get answers. And so I, I think Yahoo Answers, I was particularly proud of. And the work we did at Apple, You know, the, the merchandising part of the online store, I was very proud of. It was very clean. I don't know if it was you know some amazing piece of graphic design, but man, it was like a really shoppable, very practical, easy to use store. Checkout was super clean, uh, virtually unchanged. For six, seven years after we after we worked on it. So an interesting testament to the idea that you can make great software without doing a lot of usability testing. I mean, we didn't do any usability testing on a checkout system that was processing billions of dollars a, a year in in orders. And it was largely unchanged for many years because it was just working so well. And it was all, you know, very, very much just judgment-based design. And then the original version of the Apple Store app, which was mobile application to allow you to buy apple hardware and make reservations in the retail store really one of the first times uh, the apple online store and the apple retail organizations came together it was one of the last projects i got to present to steve i I rarely got to present to steve but that was important enough that we got to show it to him and that particular meeting went really well and so i was i was proud of the work and i was extremely proud of the team that had had created it and you know i was fortunate to get to represent all that stuff in, in that kind of a forum and some of the work we're doing at ThoughtSpot right now, I'm super proud of. I think most enterprise software is horrible. It's because many enterprise software companies assume that they can that they don't really have to treat employee-facing software all that carefully. Um, so I think the enterprise software industry, by and large, is focused on functionality over usability and accessibility and approachability. And so they've again, in many cases, they've sort of dehumanized the software. And they just sort of said, "Ah, the users will figure it out. They're pretty smart." And because they didn't want to do the hard work of trying to simplify the complex, they just pushed it over into documentation and left people to sort it out. And at ThoughtSpot, we're trying to do something very different from that. And you know, we spend a lot of time in in design trying to figure out how to simplify things, and and we've had some good wins in there. And there's there's some simple things, you know, like a change change uh, password dialog box that's been done by tons and tons of companies. And maybe it's a funny thing to be passionate about, but I think we did the best one you know we 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 did audits across all the consumer apps we looked at all the change password screens. I'm certain nobody was proud of the screens that they had done for Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook. they all kind of suck, and we backed up and treated it like a serious project and um and I thought we'd have the best change password screen there is, and I think it matters you know it 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 matters it matters like the um I don't know, like the doors, the door handles on your, on your house matter. You know, it matters like the, like the drawer pulls matter. It matters because it matters.
1: No, absolutely. Actually, before we started the episode here, we were touching a little bit on your experiences at Apple and some of the work that you have been doing and the strong emphasis also even on internal tools and like how much effort they they, they put into to make that on point. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what makes the design culture or the the overall innovation culture at apple is so unique
0: you know i worked for apple early on and then there was sort of like this long period when people other than steve jobs were running the company and, and design had always been there from sort of steve's very early days but it wasn't always the primary competitive differentiator of the company mm-hmm. and so what i came to the company in 2006, at which point Steve had already been back for, I think, eight years at that point. You know, my, my understanding is that when he returned in 1998, I think it was, you know, if you surveyed the personal computer landscape, the dominant player at the time was Dell. And then, of course, you had Gateway and some of the other PC manufacturers. And all those products were sold purely on the basis of price. You know, there was sort of baseline functionality. Uh, the computer itself had become a commodity, and it was all about operational efficiencies and how you could drive down your cost of goods and how low your margins were going to be. And so, I think as a business leader, and people, I think often forget that Steve Jobs, uh, amongst many other talents, was an unbelievable business leader. He was an unbelievable businessman. And I think when when you look at that landscape, you're like, well, we can compete on low margins, and it'll be an absolute race to the bottom. In which case it's unlikely we will win, or we can compete on quality and quality means design and making sure this stuff works. And in which case we can probably get nice margins on this stuff. And I think he just made this very rational decision to compete on design and believe that people would pay more for quality. And they do, they pay about 34% margins for high quality stuff, as opposed to most consumer electronics are probably operating in the 5% margin range. Um, And so you know when the ceo comes comes and he sets that sort of competitive differentiator for the company the whole company has to align around that thing because that is the existential thing for amazon the existential thing is value you know it's not the cheapest price but it's like do you, as a consumer do you feel like you're getting good value I'm, I'm getting something at a good price and it's super convenient if they ever screw that up it's kind of a mess for them you know google is is about functionality you know if their search results aren't great if they start having downtime that sort of stuff like like that's an existential threat to google for apple amongst many others but you know the existential threat is design if they if they have a a series of design misses the buying public will lose their confidence in the company and their sales will crater very quickly so as a result the entire company like and I and I mean everybody, not just the product org. I mean everybody in every nook and cranny of that company is focused on design and experience. And it's you can see it in many of the offices. You can see it in the in the guest check-in system, how they do package check-in, the point of sale system in the company cafeterias, like all these different places. You can see that the employees are constantly asking themselves, is this the best this could be? And if not, how could it be better? And one of my favorite examples—it's—it's it's from quite a few years ago—but you know, my understanding is that the pizza boxes, that the, the the to-go containers that they use for the pizzas in Cafe Max, which is the corporate cafeteria, um, that Apple actually holds a patent against those pizza boxes. They're actually circular instead of square. They hold the pizzas better. They hold the heat better. They are a better pizza box. You know, <laughs> and so they are. They literally yeah. are a better pizza box. You know, and so if you think about a place like Apple, like the guys, the people in in Cafe Max working on food service for the employees, you know, are asking themselves, how could this be better? And they came up with a better pizza box. Like who else does that? Like you know, that, and that that is because design's an existential threat. And, and just to extend on that for a second, I think that's what's really interesting about Tim Cook's current messaging around privacy is he's now also said that privacy, is Apple's strategic uh, competitive differentiator and as a result every employee in that company is focused on privacy and, and what that means is if you had some sort of data leak out of Apple or Apple was to trick its customers somehow like that would be a threat to Apple in a way that you know tricking customers is a behavior we've come to expect from certain companies because we we you know that's not how we think about them existentially so i think it's i think it's really an interesting management technique to set up clearly in the public eye uh, this particular competitive differentiator. And then that forces the whole org to align to that thing. Um, so at Apple, you know, design is the animating force of everything that happens inside the company. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I think with some of the things that really make it great from an experience point of view is often that where there's a design aspect to it, but there's also a technically enabling part to it, they just make it technically, they just go the extra mile, right? If you think about things like connecting things to your, uh, connecting your headphones or like Bluetooth pairing and all of these different things, well, there's the design part of it. And obviously there could be an emphasis on what could be best for the user, but then actually following that through and making it so seamless from an engineering side, I think that's very often I think where they make the leap, right? Because they're put in. Like way more energy into oh, yeah, that little yeah. details on the engineering side that, yeah. you know, most companies would not do because, you know, they would probably just say it, it works, right? Or it's it's good enough. And that's hard to rationalize. If you, um, you know, put that in as such a core value of you and say, like, that's really a differentiator for you as a company, then you put in that energy for for that difference.
0: Yeah, no, look look the software and hardware engineers I think are sort of the unsung heroes of Apple. Like what the designers get to do, they're they're a very small portion of the workforce compared to the engineering team. Uh very like I'd be surprised if it's even more than a tenth. It's clear that design is the tip of the iceberg. It's just the small part that you that you see. Uh, it is a, an important part, but it's a very small part. Um, there's a gentleman named Bob Mansfield who used to. He was SVP of Hardware mm-hmm. Engineering when Steve was around. I used to. My joke was that Johnny Ive is brought to you by Bob Mansfield. You know, you you don't have Johnny Ive's genius without Bob Bob Mansfield's genius. Like the stuff goes hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and so people. Yeah. I mean, most of these companies, and I see this with startups all the time, you know, they're like, oh, we want to be design led. you start poking around their engineering org and you're like, well, you're not really set up for it. You know, you're not, you're not prepared to be able to execute at the level of fidelity that's required to create great design. Um, and then, as you kind of noted, there's this other piece that you have to have a culture that attracts engineers who are so dedicated and so committed to providing that design. And so in love with it themselves that they're willing to go the extra mile. And so one of the the things I learned at Apple, which was, you know, when I joined Apple, to be honest, I came in with a bit of an antagonistic relationship to engineering. And I I think I took that, unfortunately, out of Yahoo, where I felt that, you know, design was sort of fighting with engineering. Like somehow it was a zero-sum game and somebody was going to win. And when I came to Apple, it took me a while, but I sort of adjusted to like, no, 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 like engineering is our partnership, is our partners. And that's probably apparent to most people, but it wasn't to me at the time. And at that point, I realized that my job as a designer was to get the engineers to fall in love with the design, because once they fell in love with it, then I could relax a little bit and know that they wanted to build it and that it would get built properly. And so when I look back at every project that I did from Apple on, and it's the it's the sort of the key linchpin moment that I look for in my current work, when is it that we've created the prototype or the mock-up or, or whatever it is? When is it we've expressed the design in a way that I could see the engineers clearly fall in love with it i can see it i can see it in their eyes and i can see them come to life and say i want to build that i want to be a part of that and then i sort of know okay now we've you know now we've got it And, and to me that's that's really the magic moment and i don't when we're working on a big project that's that's transformational i don't i don't at all rest until we get to that moment
1: yeah, I mean that, that's so true, right? The topic of design vision, for example, has been coming up in the in the podcast quite often about the importance of creating something that excites also not just the people outside, meaning it investors, but also internally that you have sort of something you're working towards, and and I think that can create so much internal momentum, so important to the to the outcome. And design plays an important role there because you can kind of make it feel because you you kind of make that tangible for people, right? And they have something they can work towards too and uh, it can feel really real even though it's maybe not real yet talking about another part of apple uh, we've been actually the way we have been connected actually was through uh, a linkedin um mm-hmm. conversation on the topic of user importance of user research All right. and uh, i think you were recommending uh, me the book um creative selection which i'm reading right now mm-hmm. which talks about the basically the creative selection at at apple and i would love to hear your point of view on that because you were saying at the checkout that you've been working um, in right there was no user research right but still it's a major and successful product right so what are your points of view on you know being user research driven when it comes to innovation when this is maybe a good approach maybe when it's maybe a, a less of a good approach
0: yeah I have a very controversial opinion here um, and I don't mean to ruffle any feathers or upset anybody I just you know, if you if you back up and say, I don't really have a dog in this fight, I'm just going to look at it observationally. Almost every person in tech would agree that Apple has the best designed software and hardware. And most of the people in tech would also say that you need to have a lot of validation research, usability research, stuff like that. They would have a big user research department. And yet Apple doesn't have usability research, validation research. They don't have a big research department. So to me that just creates a dissonance that is worth holding on to and looking at and I don't mean to dismiss the value of research because it, it if you're if you're working on products for which you're not a reliable part of the audience research is obviously invaluable. Um, the products that Apple produces by and large the the people making them at Apple are reasonable users of those products. They're reasonable proxies of those products. You know, when we worked on the online store, we were all reasonable online store shoppers. And so a lot of it was just us thinking hard about the design decisions we were making, you know, questioning them over and over and over again, checking in with the different executives in the company, making sure they were harmonious with how Apple did things. When I went to Apple retail, we did pivot a little bit. And at that point we did talk more mostly to store employees because we were creating software that was going to be used by the store employees. I don't work in a retail store. I'm not manning those handheld point-of-sale systems. So we would go in and we'd talk to the store specialists and the store employees about those sorts of things. But we often did it in terms of formative research. We did some role-playing exercises with them, We would do uh, different types of of structured ideation sessions with them. We still didn't do a lot of validation stuff because I felt that I I just haven't seen validation studies, usability studies ever really add a ton of value in terms of telling you you should do this instead of that. You know, usually you come out of usability study. It's like, "Ah, the users didn't quite get it. You know, maybe you should put in more text or something. But we're almost always testing the best idea we have. And it just seems to me that a lot of times usability testing ends up compromising the organization's ability to make decisions. In some ways, I'd rather the less be confident making the best guess we can, making our best effort, thinking hard about it. And we put our best foot forward. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, like we probably don't have any better ideas. So I again, I know that's kind of a controversial opinion. I'm sure a lot of people will vehemently disagree with me. I just haven't seen validation studies work reliably on products, again, where you're at a stage where you're trying to figure out the best UI. We are doing some really interesting things at ThoughtSpot where lately I've gotten really interested, it's gonna sound weird, but I've gotten really interested in the use of war game simulations for ways of thinking about software which Mm -hmm. you can study the history of war games. There's there's a great book called uh, A Battle of Birds and Wolves, I believe is the name, Mm -hmm. that is about um, a war game that was created by the British during World War II to understand what was happening with the German U-boats as they were trying to uh, sink the merchant fleet that was bringing supplies into England. And the British were able to figure out that whole naval battle and what was happening through a large-scale war game simulation. And it turns out, war game simulations are still used very much by militaries around the world to try to anticipate unintended things that happen in the course of of conflict. And I think that's a lot of what we don't really understand when we start designing software. You know, how do we exercise the software and try to understand how the audience might operate it in an unexpected manner instead of just taking them down the prototype and the happy path that we've imagined? You know, what's it like in the real world when they're coming? You know they're instead of coming in through the doors're coming in through the windows and they're using tools in all sorts of different unexpected ways. How can we start to understand that? So there's that's that's probably a different conversation. But I think there's a lot of interesting innovative work to be done in research methods that would pull from anthropology in particular, um but also some of this um, again, these war game simulation things. I just think there's other there's other techniques to understand how people are going to relate to and utilize software tools that's that's different from what. You know, we saw a lot in the 2000s, which was basic usability testing. Mm-hmm. Which, which I will also say, like maybe it was useful and important at that point because, as creators and artists, we were still developing a feel for how the audience used software. And I do definitely see now, even with you know with my team, some of some of whom are, are pretty junior, and I saw this at Pinterest as well. Most of those designers had not spent a hundred hours watching the audience use software. So I w- I will say there's something invaluable about watching your audience use software. I don't think it has to be your design, but mm-hmm. simply sitting around watching people getting it understanding. Yeah, you start to understand how the audience relates because yeah. it is a it is a really odd thing about our in about our medium that it has such incredible reach, but we never see the audience use it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean Steven Spielberg goes to the movies, you know. Uh, Tom Cruise goes to the movies. Musicians go to concerts, stand-up comedians perform, they see the audience you know, we're completely disconnected from the audience. I mean, my stuff I've worked on has literally been used by over a billion people and I've seen it happen maybe three times. So you have to have some way of starting to understand how, as I like to call them, how mere, how mere mortals, you know, normal people, how they use software. And again, working in Apple retail, it was interesting and useful because we could just go into the stores and watch people. You know, we could mm-hmm. just sort of, we could lurk around. You know, and I and I encourage designers. You know, sounds a little voyeuristic, but you know, if you get to go to an amusement park, sit around and watch people how watch how they use the tickets, watch how they how they buy their drinks, watch how they you know use the systems to queue up in lines. Um, Disneyland. We live in California, you know, so Disneyland is fairly accessible for us. Disney Disneyland's an amazing adventure as a designer just to watch all the systems in that park and how people relate to that experience. Thank you for sharing your point of view
1: here. It definitely makes sense, right? I mean, if you have built up a certain level of empathy, and I think this could come through experience by learning how people react. There's also the aspect that, you know, it makes you slower and can make a organization, you know, make decisions not that fast, which can be, there's a lot of danger in that as well. Right? So if, if, you can have a good relation to the user or you can probably tell that your internal team would be uh, also considered users. Then it might be, you know, more speedy to just uh, ship it. The nice thing about digital products these days, depending on how they were built and what kind of product it is, but usually you can change things also fast. Yeah. And you get a lot of data. Well, you know, you have actually real people using your product and you have take Topics like A-B testing, where you can give that design solution to, you know, a million people and see like how they react and then make a design decision or not. But that's certainly also there. So it doesn't need to be always user research just for the sake of user research, right? If it makes you slower.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you used the right word there. It's like, how do you create empathy with the audience, you know, yeah. and try to meet them where they are? Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, I, I will say too that, you know, back in around 2000, I wrote a book called Making the Web Work. And uh, it's fairly out of date now, but one of the interesting things in there is I, I proposed this model for how to deconstruct a user interface through all these different layers. They kind of went from the conceptual model up through a variety of editing behaviors and into sort of these presentation layer behaviors that included things like color and style and text and animations and stuff. And one of the implications of that model is that the, the elements of the UI that most impact the usability of the product are things like the conceptual model and how the product's fundamentally organized; those things, it turns out, are very hard to change and are almost never tested. <laughs> you know, in fact, they're rarely consciously designed. I mean, I've been in, throughout the whole of my career. I've had maybe two or three discussions about the conceptual model of a product. What is this thing really? You know, or how should we organize it? That's happened very few times. Again, ClarisWorks was a moment when we did the Apple Store app, and we were trying to decide which objects should appear mm-hmm. in the tray. You know, we had that meeting once. And we decided what should be in the tray. And that was that. And, you know, I think we made the right decision. But like once that decision gets made, like that's kind of the thing. The stuff that you mostly hear feedback about are all these things, as you mentioned, that are easy to change. Like what are the words in the copy? What's the color? What's the layout? What's the graphic design? Those things are very malleable in code. They're mostly in the web. They're mostly abstracted into CSS. So there's also this weird paradox that the things that most impact usability are the things that we almost never talk about and that are almost impossible to change. So we're actually designing and creating by instinct anyways. We're just not particularly conscious about it. And then all these presentation layer decisions that are in some ways about fashion and style, You know, we punt those into A-B testing and into usability tests and stuff. And they're, those things are actually not all that consequential when it comes to the usability of a product.
1: Yeah, I think we can uh, link also that uh, book to the, uh, we can put a link into the show notes for people to find out about um,
0: your book. Yeah, I still um, give Zen- talks about that model sometimes. And the talk, the, yeah. the to- I mean, the, if you want to buy the book, that would be great. It's a little overpriced, but still be cool. Um, <laughs> but it's also based, in, you know, it's got a bunch of screenshots of uh, web products from 2002. So it might be a little out of date, but I also give talks. So in the show notes, maybe we can reference a couple of videos as well.
1: Sure, sure, Absolutely. Talking about that, talking about you know making interfaces uh, work. I mean, you know, I think the notion of user research and testing things. I think now, I think, is everyone working on digital products or even business leaders know about that, right? And if you have to convince someone about the design solution you maybe want to implement or uh, like a design idea, you have very easily it could go into well, the discussion go into well, we let's test it, right? Is this really like better, right? And this could go also to the point where it makes you slower because you can't push things forward because people ask you to prove that your idea is better. Uh, but sometimes as designers, there are some low hanging fruits where you, it's not just about the, that it works better for the user and maybe um, something you can just see to, uh, because you have empathy and experience in the space, but there also might be strategic reasons behind it from a, from a design point of view. Any kind of experience, uh, how to deal with these kinds of discussions. Uh, Or have you experienced such discussions yourself where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, from a business point of view, we know that it was questioned if we should do a solution unless it's tested.
0: So whether or not it's tested is maybe that's a strategy where the business is trying to de-risk the situation. Yeah. So they have some some risk fear. And maybe testing will de-risk it, but maybe it won't. You know, maybe it's just a gut check that they're afraid they're going to blow up the whole business or something. So they want to get some input. And that there's times when that could very well be the right business decision. If you're talking about, you know, whether or not a particular solution you know, is really the right thing. I Or people start using this language about, well, it's, it kind of comes down to opinion. Like that's a place where I always jump in. I'm like, design is not opinion. You know, design is a rational, predictable solution to a well-defined problem. So if we can't decide if this is the right solution, it's because we haven't clearly defined the problem we're trying to solve. So let's continue talking about the problem. Like, what is it that we're really trying to let the user do? What is it that the system really needs to do? Like, I I just try to bring it back to what are we trying to communicate? And then once you've reached consensus and agreement on that, the design solution, I can't really think of any instances where we ended up disagreeing whether or not a particular solution solved that exact problem. Um, Even in visual design, you know, when it could be, you know, red or blue, I'm always like, look, it's not a matter of choice between red or blue. Red and blue both communicate something. What is it we're trying to communicate? And let's pick the color that does that. A, a good example here, just to go back to a quick story from Apple. You know, I had the opportunity to redesign the Apple online store, the, the merchandising, sort of the shopping part of the site as well. That was one of the first projects we worked on. And as you can imagine, like redoing the homepage of the Apple online store is a pretty complicated, controversial. You know, that's a that's an expensive page to be messing with. And it had to be reviewed by a lot of executives in the company, and so we spun our wheels for a while until we figured out how to how to structure the problem we were trying to solve. And we ended up in this exercise of saying there was these different stages of the purchasing process, which involved being able to locate products, making the user aware of all the products that were there, helping them evaluate the products, et cetera. And then there was, you know, are we trying to help? Are we trying to do those things through the lens of Apple Hero products? through the lens of all the third-party accessories or the online store as a business entity itself. And you know, through a series of events, we ended up kind of with this framework where we said the role of the homepage is to help users locate Apple Hero products, make them aware of all the third-party accessories that we're selling, and then uh, help them evaluate the online store as a place to shop. And so we ended up structuring the page kind of in equal thirds. You know, and the top thing was this shelf. It was all little pictures of all the main Apple products, the iPhones, the iPods, the, the Macs. The middle section was all about, hey, here's our gift guide and all the different accessories and categories and stuff. And then the bottom was, you know, deliver to your house, all these different payment methods, build your own Mac, et cetera. And as that design made its way through the different executive ranks at, at Apple? Like we would emphasize that problem and then we would show the design. And there was very little debate about it. Like that design, actually, considering how many different ways that could have gone, that actually went through all the executive meetings really effectively. And again, it's I think it's because we had set up the problem. It was the right definition of the problem. People agreed with that, and then the design solution very clearly was in response to that problem. You know, and I think this is the place where design really departs from art. I mean some sometimes art, and actually some of the best art, it does start off as some sort of structural problem that the artist is trying to respond to. Question or or even like just structural uh, technical problems in music, for example, trying to take a theme and do it in 24 different keys or something. But design, you kind of have to define the problem. It's a lot about defining that problem. And then it's finding a way to balance multiple variables so that they all come together into one, one singular solution that solves that problem. And again, you know, at ThoughtSpot, there's a lot of conversations where people are like, well, I don't know, it kind of feels like that's just... You know, an opinion is a debate. I'm always like, no, no, no. Like, if we've <laughs> as soon as we've started talking about that, that's opinion. We haven't defined the problem, so let's back up and try to keep it in that world. Um, and that's I find that that way of operating particularly effective in the software industry because it is so highly populated by engineering and a very logical, analytical mind. That I don't want the design decisions to ever seem random or just taste-based or my opinion versus your opinion. Like, we all have to agree logically, analytically, that this is the right thing to do.
1: Mm -hmm. It's so true what you say. I mean, even talking about visual design, right? I mean, where everyone feels like they can comment or like uh, people feel like maybe it's just an opinion, right? Mm -hmm. If you have Mm -hmm. a really strong point, uh, argumentation about like why it is the way it is, why we make users feel a certain way, what's the whole story behind it, and they have a really robust and strong argumentation. Even with topics like visual design, uh, if you really want to do a major change, maybe from a visual design perspective, you can get that through very, very smooth, but it's really down to making a very strong argumentation. And I think that's that's a little bit the art because what I see very often, I think that's something you learn over time, but emphasizing with the other stakeholders what they care about and how you can create a win-win. But basically, creating the, the that visual design is just one part of the the work, basically, but you know making it connect to the problem that we actually want to solve and putting it into a stronger computation is sort of like another form of art, basically, or another part I yeah. think that's, that's critical yeah.
0: yeah, it goes back to a little bit of kind of where we started, which was you know like what i I love the the problem solving aspect of, mm-hmm. of software design. Mm-hmm. you know to me, these things are like these big giant puzzles. You know, it's not surprising that I also play chess, you know, that I that I love the chess puzzles. I, I love that kind of watchmaker mentality to it all. And so the software that I've worked on, when you asked me my favorite projects, like the, the reason I named the ones that I named is because I love them. I love them deeply as solutions to complicated problems. And I could explain to you almost to this day, every last pixel on the screen and while it was there, you know, like what the meaning was, which you know, it was an important part of whatever success I had at Apple, but it's, you know, it's just the attitude I take, like a design's not done until I can explain every last thing. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to designers at many other companies, you know, and you ask them, do they love the product they're working on? You know, and and often it's not They like, they don't even know how to respond to that question. They just, Mm -hmm. frankly, sometimes they just burst out laughing like that the mere suggestion that they would love the product they're working on. Most of these products aren't a solution to anything Other than optimizing monetization, and there are all these little, you know, on the on the on the page, there's all these little modules and doodads that have all been optimized to death, you know, to create the most pop, uh, you know, the largest possible stream of money, and nobody loves them as a complete solution. Um, And and again, it's just, um, I don't know, man, it's just sad. (laughs) It's just, it's not, it's not a world where. We wake up every day and think technology is here to serve our needs it's a it's a world where we wake up and think the machines have won and i don't, I don't think that's the way it has to be mm-hmm.
1: no absolutely and you know connecting to the product and solution you're building is that makes such a difference as a designer and about like how much you care about the solution and the overall quality talking maybe about your time at pinterest for a second um, i mean that's quite different to apple i assume because pinterest has to deal with a lot of third-party content or people uploading content. So I think from a design point of view, you have to kind of deal with content complexity also from a visual standpoint. While I think at Apple, you have more control over that. What was the biggest or some of the biggest design challenges that you, you know, were facing at, at Pinterest?
0: So I actually joined Pinterest in, uh, for the goal of trying to help grow the design team. You know, at that moment, the team was relatively small and the creative co-founder, Evan Sharp, was looking for assistance in just scaling the team rapidly. And so my main focus was on sort of the operational aspects of Pinterest, the design team of Pinterest, rather Mm -hmm. than the creative aspects. A handful of us collectively were able to grow the team from around 11 or 12 designers up to about 40 in a relatively short period of time, started to establish what the what the culture of the design team there was going to look like in terms of the, the weekly rhythms, the review cadences, career levels, structure, organizational structure of the team, reporting structures, things like that. Probably the most important thing I did there was I hired a woman named Meredith Black who came in uh, to lead design operations for us. Meredith stayed uh, much longer than I did, and she did a mm-hmm. phenomenal job. And you know, now has founded Design Ops Assembly and is really kind of one of the pioneers in the whole design ops world. So, you know, compared to Apple, the challenge for me at Pinterest was really one more of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, the A the lot, most of the creative decisions, you know, stayed in the hands of Evan and it was really Evan and Ben that sort of made those, made most of those product decisions. I suspect at this point, you know, the company is more led by by different types of creative processes, but I don't really know because I've been out of the company for quite some time.
1: Design operations sort of like a complete other field uh, of design, right? I think that, I think it's, difficult to to learn unless you have really grassroots ex- experience in design and understand the process as well. And I think uh, that's, I think, also something that I think it needs a lot of experience, I think. And it's not something you can basically learn in, in school <laughs> and basically jump,
0: jump straight into it, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the field of design ops is, you know, that's a big, giant, complicated thing in and of itself. I mean, there's also executive yeah. design leadership, which is a complicated thing that no, mm-hmm. that we're still figuring out as an industry. What's interesting, you know, and it's changed dramatically, obviously, since I got started, is the scale of some of these design teams has just gotten enormous. I mean, you have, you know, multiple hundreds, if not multiple thousands, of designers. And so you how you coordinate all that action so that the products look like they come from a single mind. That is a very challenge, very difficult organizational challenge. I think in the case of some of these companies, too, particularly social media companies, so much of a user's uh, of the audience's long-term engagement has to do with their uh, initial sign-on process, their initial startup process. You know, Do they pick out the correct uh, interest? Do they, you know, can you build that initial feed? Can you get them connected to the right people? And the, the, you know, can you make a good first impression? And because you have a lot of data of how people are coming into the product, you can create a lot of variations of that first impression. Uh, and you can test out a lot of things on that first impression. So I, my sense is that a lot of these large-scale teams are working on those kinds of problems. They're really working on all the all the variations that mm. that you know are part Very of a product as you go from culture to culture, as you go from audience to audience. Those are things that Apple doesn't face as much because Apple is you know Apple is what Apple is everywhere in the world, and that's part of the difference with a product that's a free product that you're trying to get people to try. And engage with versus a product where uh, by the time somebody experiences an apple product they've already paid money for it so you're you're kind of over the first impression at that point and so it's a it's a very different business model software that's supported by advertising versus software that's supported by you know somebody buying it it's a it's a difference between movies and tv you know it's a it's a, it's a very different uh it's not even genre it's a very different flavor of the medium mm-hmm. you know i'll say I'll right. say one other thing here real quick, that's this, again sort of this adjacent thinking, which is I mentioned that that these things like design ops and how we use research and design leadership, these are all things that we're still figuring out. And I always like to help people try to understand the parallel between the evolution of software design and the beginning of movies as an industry. And I try to help people remember that we really only started designing software for real around two thousand and eight which is when Apple released the App Store. And it's really only then when users were carrying the, you know, when they were interacting with software hundreds or thousands of times a day, that companies really, really started to care about software and design. It's not that we didn't design software before the App Store, but we didn't care in the same way. And I think there's an interesting parallel to uh, the history of cinema where, you know, there was a few decades in there where we were making uh, silent pictures in black and white. You know, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. I mean, there's plenty of great movies, Nosferatu. There's plenty of great movies that happened before there was synchronized sound and before there was color. But it's really the advent of those two things uh, synchronized sound with the jazz singer. And I think about 1928, color with Wizard of Oz, which I think is around 1934. It's only in after that period that you really start talking about making movies in a very real way. And it was in those moments as well when we really started to develop structure of how you make movies. You know, Storyboarding, for example, was invented by the Walt Disney Studios so they could make... Um, it, the first time they used it at scale was when they made Snow White, which again, I think is the early 30s, maybe the late 30s. They had actually developed it for one of the short cartoons before. But a lot of these processes that we're working on now are things that we've only been working on since like 2008. In 2008... It's the same summer though, Barack Obama was running for president of the United States. It was, most of us can remember it. It was not that long ago. So we're still very early days of figuring this stuff out. If you back up and look at it, I think we've made enormous progress in whatever that is, 12 years, but there's, you know, there's still a long ways to go. And, and unfortunately our peers are not unfortunately, but you know, our peers in engineering, people have been making, engine, been making software at scale since the fifties. Like they've figured out a lot of these processes and, you know, we're just, we're just getting started. So that's that's where a lot of the um I think the frustration that people that leaders sometimes feel, you know everybody's trying to invent this stuff. I think sometimes you can get really wrapped up in the uncertainty of how to do things and get um get kind of burned out and frustrated at the confusion of it all. Um but I think again, that's just that we're trying to collectively figure out how to make software at scale. and it's going to take us a little bit longer to figure out the processes and roles and tool sets and workflows and all the rest of that stuff. Mm-hmm the so systemization
1: of a creative process in a sense, right? I mean, that's what we kind of learn, right? How you can get to, a, let's say, an expected outcome uh, with a certain process in the best way and how you uh, set up that process and operate it, right? Uh, and it kind of work with other stakeholders.
0: Yeah, that's it's, um, it's a, it's a great way to put it. I mean, think of how long it took them to figure out how to make cars. You know, or how to, or how to build large-scale buildings. You know, that there are simpler forms of art. You know, like like uh, piano music and literature and painting that don't require the coordination of hundreds or thousands of people. But when you start getting into these large-scale projects, you have to figure out how to coordinate people and to coordinate creative people so they move towards a singular vision and they're all working in in concert towards the same, uh, towards the same creative output. Like that's that's a hard thing to pull off. I mean, when you I'm currently watching Lord of the Rings with my son. I haven't seen it in a long time. Like when you just back up and you look at it as a a output of a product, like that is, just that's phenomenal. I mean, it was shot over the the principal photography was like 450 days, took them eight years to make all three films. I mean, just think about again, operationally, how they pulled off that movie. We'll, We'll set aside how strong it is creatively, but just operationally how they executed. It is phenomenal absolutely phenomenal I mean, it's like space shuttle types coordination it's just mm-hmm. incredible and i don't think we're you know we're a long ways except for a few organizations i think we're a long way there a long way from getting there on the software front you know there, there are a few i mean figma's executing well i think apple's executing well at scale but you know figma's maybe a few hundred people apple's a few thousand
1: i never thought it that way but you're totally right i mean the movie industry um you know they, they have a creative process and they have to deal with that opera- the operation part for way longer even with even with bigger complexity and and different roles and stuff like that so i think probably a lot to learn from them i have like a hundred other questions i would like to ask <laughs> you uh, bob <laughs> uh, but we are like already over time and i think we need to wrap it up but thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all of your learnings and um, all of your experiences with the audience this is so great
0: yeah well thank you so much sebastian it's uh... It's a great honor and privilege to have the platform to get to share some of my learnings. And I hope people can get as passionate about this stuff as I am, because it, it really matters, man. Software really, really matters. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed
1: the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up. And let me know in the comments about taking me in a post. What were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provided you a lot of value, Make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others, so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time. Cheers.